0: And we're turning again to John, still in John, still making our way through. Last week we talked about the story where Jesus turns water into wine, and I thought about naming that sermon, Jesus' party, and then this sermon, the party's over. Uh, There is a marked change in the tone here. So, we'll pick up in John 2, verse 13. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about, about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God's given us his word to make the work of Jesus plain and to make the truth of the good news for you clear. So let's pray that it would be clear this morning. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us by your word. We trust that it is through your word that the riches of the good news of Jesus are available to us. And it is through your word that your spirit works so that we can understand, so that we can see the height and depth and breadth of your love for us. So make it clear in your son's name we ask. Amen. Well, uh, there's a little verse quoted here from Psalm 69 about the zeal of the Lord. And I think zeal is one of those things that makes us uncomfortable. Maybe there's some low level discomfort when you meet a really zealous fan of a team, right? Maybe it's your alma mater and you're the person making everybody else uncomfortable. Talk to you Clemson fans. No, there, You know, we're kind of used to fans, right? And yes, there's every once in a while the guy that gets in a fight in the stands, but you know, most of us can kind of keep it under control. You know? uh, there are people who are just fans of a band, and I guess there's sort of like internet, you know, mobs that will attack you if you're a fan of them. But by and large, most of us are have that under control. Uh, Maybe you know people who are zealous for a social cause. And again, it may be a good thing. You might even agree with them, but, you know, boy, there's folks who are just, that is everything about their life, and it kind of makes you uncomfortable. Of course, people are zealous about political parties, and since that has become a religion to itself now, a little wonder, right? But religion itself is one of these things that makes us deeply uncomfortable when someone's zealous about it. There's a real irony here because when I grew up, at least in American culture, typically we saw the zeal of, say, the Soviet Union and its irreligious bent, its irreligious convictions as a great threat. Uh, But I was a college senior on 9-11 And it's kind of fascinating. A lot of social commentators have noted that generations that the generations, the millennials, Gen Z, uh, who have who have grown up in the wake of nine eleven, have been deeply suspicious of people who are too religious. I don't think that's an accident. And whatever commentary we might make on social causes, we are often uncomfortable with people who are zealous religiously. And again, maybe in some ways for good reasons, but what we see is that Jesus has a zeal that is not dangerous, but life-giving. Jesus has a zeal that is not a threat. It's not a threat. But in fact, gives life. One of the things, so what we see is his zeal for God's worship and for God's mission. Jesus' zeal is for God's worship and God's mission. There's a lot of things that form the background of this as we start to think about his zeal for God's worship. One of these that is kind of a, an interesting fact, and you probably note it if, you've, if you know the gospel stories much, is that this, a story of Jesus cleansing the temple appears in all of the four gospels. What's strange is, is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, it appears at the end of the Gospels, after the triumphal entry when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And in the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the unfolding of of Jesus last week, it is a key moment that will eventually lead to His crucifixion. In John, this takes place, obviously, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry… Now, commentators have tried to figure this out. Are these two different events? Are they the same event? And maybe one of them, perhaps John, has thematically sort of reorganized things. Some of that happens in the Gospels where, you know, the chronology is not exactly clear and some things get organized kind of thematically rather than in a strict chronology. Uh, I don't think that's the case here. I think there's probably two different events. But whatever the case is, that's something you probably know. And in all of those stories, it's important to note this fact. All of this stuff is actually necessary. People need to be able to exchange their money, especially this is the Passover feast. Uh, remember this, that the, the Jewish people have been spread out throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle East for a long time for about 600 years at this point since the initial destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so there's been, there are people coming from all over. They've got to actually exchange their money somewhere. And in fact, the whole sacrificial system requires some kind of market, especially for people who are traveling from all over. I and mean, they're not going to have their, a goat with them. <laughs> They're not going to have the things that they need. So some of this is required, and it's important to remember, Jesus is not, you know, this isn't some, like, anti-capitalist kind of uh, screed here. Now, by the way, Jesus, I would, probably not a capitalist either exactly, so, you know, let's be clear about that. But (laughs) he's he's not saying, look, you shouldn't have anything to do with the market. His point is where it is. And the, the Temple Mount at the time, uh, what you have to understand is there's this whole complex, and that kind of gets called the temple, but it's enormous. There, there is a, a small section of the Temple Mount that is actually the temple proper. But there's this very, very large courtyard that surrounds it. It was often called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. And that's where this market is set up, but it surrounds the actual temple, <laughs> So it's not like people are selling these things within, you know, the strict confines of exactly what the law says, you know, is the temple. But it surrounds it. And Jesus' point then is pretty obvious, right? He contrasts his father's house with a house of trade. And his problem isn't that some people have to trade, (laughs) His point is that the, the place that is supposed to be his father's house has become this noisy market. And if you've ever been in any part of the world where there's a kind of working daily market, it is a cacophony. I know we have little farmer's markets, you know, in Charleston. A couple of places, maybe you go to Holy City or something, or you, you, and go to these little farmer's markets. This is not what we're talking about. That's where we get our, like, niche you know, grass-fed eggs, all, you know, all these kinds of things. No, 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 this are, this are, these are people doing their daily, <laughs> you know, when you think about people doing daily business, and this is all stuff to do with the ceremonial law. So there's all these live animals. So, needless to say, it's very smelly. And there's a mess. Again, you know, they're thinking, but it's not happening where we're told it shouldn't, Right? not happening within the, you know, official courtyard of the temple. It's happening outside of it. But of course, what Jesus is recognizing is nobody can worship in the temple proper because of all the smell and all the noise and the haggling. And you can imagine, you know, you can imagine everything that's going on around them. So that once you walk over this little wall <laughs> that separated you know, the, the actual temple from the surrounding courtyard, there's, you know, you can still hear everything that's going on. You can still smell everything. And imagine going there to pray. Jesus says, it's my Father's house. And that, that expression, I think, is really instructive because while it's not unfounded in Old Testament, it is a very familiar way of talking about the temple that most first century Jews would not use. It has some Old Testament background, but it's, it, it, most people wouldn't talk that way. But Jesus, in highlighting that it's his father's house, it tells us that this is a place where God is supposed to be met, where we're supposed to, we're supposed to think of as a home, But not his home, his father's home, right? A place where he treats with respect and stewardship. I mean, you know how this is, right? I mean, maybe not so much when you're growing up and you actually live in the house. But once you move out of the house and you end up back at your parents' place, right? You know how everything's supposed to be. Uh, My... My brother-in-law's one of his favorite things to do at Christmas time at my in-law's house is take these blocks that are, Merry, you know, say "Merry Christmas" and rearrange them to say different, different things, and uh, it's really funny. But you know, he knows it's going to stand out right away, right? <laughs> that he's that he's rearranged those things. Um, but it's this is the thing, right? You go back and you go to your parents' home, especially once you've moved out of it, and you, you know, you know your, what you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to treat it respectfully. But, you know, in, in an ideal home, of course, right then, respect and affection are not at odds. I mean, none of our families are perfect. I'm not saying we ever really achieve that perfectly, but that's supposed to be what it is, right? Love and honor, respect and affection are supposed to go together, not be driven apart. And this is what Jesus then is saying, your worship, while it may conform to the rules as they are spelled out, has lost its heart. You've forgotten what the whole thing's about. I mean, that's what. I mean, some things never change, I guess, right? Because I mean, isn't that kind of what we feel the tension is in church often? And like, you know, we're we're a Presbyterian church, and Presbyterians have been very concerned over the years, I think for good reason, to think about, like, what what is it that God tells us to do in worship, right? And we don't have the freedom to just make up whatever things we want to add to the worship service, and, you know, we're supposed to do it the way God told us to. We call it the regulative principle. It's a big thing, Presbyterian circles. And yet, you can do everything by the you can kind of go down the checklist and your heart can still be far from God. It is possible to do everything sort of by the rules, but to miss it, what it's really about. You know, I, I mean, of course, there's a temptation, I think, on the opposite side to think, well, then everything ought to be spontaneous. And These kind of mark the poles of American Christianity, I think, don't they? I mean, you know, is it either either we're going to be the people that kind of are really fastidious and do everything just right, and and, and maybe we'll feel moved, <laughs> maybe our hearts will be engaged, or man, this is all about our feelings, but then we have a hard time gauging whether our feelings are actually going in the right direction. I think this is what we often feel kind of pulled between. Jesus will have none of it, (laughs) right? Jesus is saying, right, it's supposed to be love and honor, affection and respect that go together in the worship of the Lord. These things are supposed to be one and the same because that's what it's like to meet the Lord. And actually, Justin and I were talking about this recently about the logic of the worship service and whether we've really talked about that much I don't know if you've thought about that. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole flow of the worship service is supposed to remind us of everything God has done for us. If you think about it, and you, could look at, you can actually look at your bulletin if you want, but it starts with the call from the Lord. Not from me, not from anybody else, not from the session, not from anybody else. It is a call from the Lord to come and worship Him. And what flows out of that, right, next is our response of repentance and faith in Christ. The response of prayers and offerings, then looking to receive from Him His Word, receive from Him the gift of this meal. Of course, all that punctuated with singing His praises along the way, right? It is... The whole point is to remind us so that even if I totally screw up and forget to talk about Jesus, which would be a problem. Don't get me wrong, that would be a problem. That the whole of the service has told us the story of the good news. So that when you walk in here, you all all know you're going to hear the good news. However much of a bum the pastor may be when he preaches, right? Like you're still going to hear the good news. That's the whole point of worship. I mean, that's why you know singing is not an incidental thing that we do then in worship, because there's something there's a you know there's a story that Anne Lamott tells, uh, and she ha- and she's talking about going into a, a church service, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but she has this line. She says, "What is it about music? It's a chord here and a chord there, and then your heart breaks open." You know, like there's something strange about singing that engages our hearts. Because we are called to get, and that's what the Old Testament tells us to do, right? This is what Jesus knows, right? They're supposed to go in to the courts with singing. And how can they sing when all you can hear are the oxen and the sheep and all those birds? There's a lot of birds that are part of the ceremonial system, Right? They're supposed to go in to pray and to sing his praises. It's not an accident, right? Because your heart's supposed to be engaged with what we're doing. It's supposed to be a celebration. That's why I realized this couldn't be parties over as a sermon, right? It's because what Jesus is saying is your party's gone off the rails. You've forgotten what you were here to celebrate. Jesus isn't trying to put a damper on the party. He's trying to bring the party back. He's to kick out the riffraff that snuck in. <laughs> That's what he's doing. And in other words, too, then, our worship is supposed to share the joy of the good news week in and week out. So that whether you've come here for the first time, you're supposed to hear the good news of Jesus, what he has done for you. And whether you've been here a hundred times, a thousand times, I don't know if this church has actually been around that long. I haven't done the math. Whether you've come over and over and over again, you are being reminded once again, because we always need to be reminded because we always forget, the good news of Jesus. In that sense then, zealous worship will be self-critical Don't get me wrong. When I say our worship ought to be self-critical, it's not morbidly introspective. I think that there's sometimes we have worship services where, you know, you kind of feel like I'm supposed to be beating myself up here. Like, I'm supposed to be thinking about all the ways I'm screwed up. That's not what I mean. There is a time to confess, right? There is a time to think about our problems. There's a literal time of confession in our service. But it's to be reminded that this isn't about me. That's what I mean about self-critical, is so often we're, we become so focused on our own stuff, our own issues, what am I bringing? And we forget that we're here not to hear the good news, quote-unquote, of how messed up you are. We are here to hear the good news of that despite how messed up you are, the Father loves you. And despite how messed up you are, Jesus came and gave his life for you and was raised up for you. And that despite how messed up you are, the Spirit is at work in you. That's what we come for. And so often, I think, as we, you know, talk about how polarized our worship is in American Christianity, it's because we are trying to avoid dealing with the overwhelming love of God, to avoid the freedom of the grace that we've been given, to avoid the power of the Spirit at work because it takes it out of our hands. So, Jesus is zealous for God's worship, and worship is our end. I mean, our our catechism, you know, rightly, beautifully, you know, describes what the end, the goal of human life is, right? Right? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Worship is the thing we are meant for. But we don't come because we can do it. And so Jesus, too, while well, He's got His eye on the, the goal, knows what it takes to get there. And He starts to talk about this, as again, uh, as so often happens in in these gospel accounts, in verse 18, the Jewish leaders ask for a sign. This happens multiple times and, you know, all over the gospels. They keep asking for a sign. As if 900 bottles of wine out of water was not enough. As if the miracles that Jesus is apparently performing in Jerusalem, you know, we find this in verse 23, are not enough. This is a theme, and this is an important theme, that the the religious leaders keep asking Jesus for signs because they do not want to accept the signs that he is giving. And just as he does elsewhere, he does here, he says, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And the sign is always about what he's going to do. And so he gives them, you might call it a riddle, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, I am certain that no one understood what he was talking about there. And I'm pretty sure they had no way of understanding what he was talking about there, right? John editorializes a little bit for us, right? He tells us, look, later on the disciples realized what Jesus had been talking about. But in other words, it's not that Jesus is not giving them an answer, though. But he's telling them, "Watch, watch what happens. That will be the sign." It's the same thing elsewhere, where he tells them, "I'm going. You want you want a sign? I'll give you no other sign but the sign of Jonah. Three days. In seeming, yeah. Well, in Jonah, it seemed like he had died, <laughs> right?" Uh, And then he'll come back. And so, too, here he talks about himself as the temple. And John has been telling us this, that Jesus is the real temple. He is the presence of God that has taken on flesh. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 14, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when we talked about that passage, we talked about how clearly that's language that echoes the idea of the tabernacle in the wilderness where God pitched his tent with them. With Israel when they had come out of, out of Egypt. So, the whole idea of the, that Jesus is the very presence of God, the thing that the temple was really all about, is already established clearly in John. And this is obviously what Jesus is talking about, but really, again, for anybody that was there with Him, it was only obvious in hindsight. The invitation was to watch Jesus' life and see what happens. To watch what was going on with him and see what happens. So if you're asking yourself, why won't he explain himself to them? Well, Jesus, we're actually told that in verses 24 and 25, right? Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to the crowd (laughs) and much less the religious leadership, right? He wouldn't entrust himself, meaning… He wasn't going to rely on them to bear witness about him. Now, the crowds, you know, contrary to the religious leadership, are intrigued by the signs. It doesn't mean they necessarily understand what they're about. They're intrigued, but he's not entrusting himself to them. He's not relying on them. This is a theme that's going to become really important throughout the Gospel of John, is who will bear witness, who will legitimate the authority of Jesus, and Jesus will not let any of us be the witness to his authority, because he knows what's in us. Isn't that an ominous line at the end of this passage, right? Jesus knew what was in man. He knows that we are deceptive and perhaps even more to the point here, self deceptive. As Jeremiah says in chapter 17, the heart is deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? Jesus knows that we deceive others and we deceive often enough ourselves. Jesus is not going to rely on the testimony of others, rather it will be his death and his resurrection that makes plain what he is, what he is accomplishing. And all that is to say then that Jesus' zeal is not only for worship as the goal, but for the thing that will accomplish it, the thing that will actually draw us into the presence of God, the thing that will actually change our hearts. Which is not just showing up, which is not just going through the paces, but it's about dealing with him as the one who died and rose again. That's why we call it good news, because it's not about the changes that you're making, it's about what Jesus has done. I mean I know we say this often, but it's worth saying over and over and over again, the gospel is good and you know, good news. It's not good advice. It's not a... Regiment that you're supposed to follow, the gospel is good news, that Jesus died for you and that he was raised so that sin and death would not be the last word about you. Now, that changes our lives for sure. But there's a reason why the church called it news and not a self-improvement plan. There's a reason why it is news, because it is true. And the evidence that that Jesus is trustworthy is in his death and resurrection, not in you and me. It can be encouraging to hear people's testimonies, right? That is a good thing. It can be helpful. But somebody who just tells you how their life has changed has not given you a testimony. Somebody who tells you what Jesus did is giving you a testimony. Do you see the difference? So often, I think, especially in evangelical circles, that is what it is. It's, well, my story of how I changed. And, you know, Jesus played a part in that. No. The good news is that Jesus died for you and was raised from the dead. And praise the Lord for the way he's working in somebody else's life. That's great. But what you need to do is meet Jesus. What you need to do is meet the one who has died and risen from the dead. You don't need to live somebody else's life vicariously. You need to deal with the one who is life. That's why it's news. That's why it's the center of this thing is not what you and I do. But what Jesus has done. And we really do mix that up, don't we? We really do get that wrong all the time. I mean, sometimes, of course, there's kind of classic moralism, right? Where we start to think that, well, what the what Christianity really is, is a formula for getting my act together. Now, what a Christian life is, is me getting my act together. That's not the gospel. Yes, the gospel will have consequences in your life, but that's not the gospel. Sometimes, of course, we think it's a kind of, I mean, we have kind of intellectualism sometimes, and I mean, Presbyterians are exhibit A. In this, right, we think that, well, it's this mastery of knowledge. That's not the good news. As great as I think theology is. Mastering the Bible is not the good news. And by the way, it's a bad way to start to think about yourself, right? Because the Bible is actually supposed to be a book that interprets me, not the other way around. I mean, there's other versions of this. I mean, you know, I think there are certainly plenty of forms of Christianity and lots of other religions that are a kind of self-realization plan, The truth is in me to find out. But all of those are evasions. If what is in us is deception and self deception, then every one of those paths is a dead end. Because we will never be good enough. And all the knowledge in the world will not do us any good. And whatever it is that we start to realize is in us will be self deception. You see, what Jesus knows is what we need is not any of those things. We don't need moralism, we don't need a philosophy. We don't need a self-realization regimen. What we need is His death and His resurrection. That's what will change us. And when we lose sight of the gospel for one of those things, the temptation towards one of those things is because we can evade dealing with Jesus. Jesus. We can evade dealing with him as the one who has died and risen from the dead. Because it is so deeply uncomfortable because we are so out of control. You know, one of my favorite lines in all of literature is in Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood. A weird, super weird novel. And one of the characters, it's said that has a black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If there isn't a <laughs> if there isn't a better critique of that good old time religion I don't know one that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And all of those ways deceive us into thinking we're not that bad off. We can manage. We can get by. We can control what's going on and Jesus will have none of it. Because you don't need to get better. You need to be crucified with him and to be raised from the dead. Everything else is not going to work. It's a New Year's resolution that's going to last for two weeks. It's putting a Band-Aid on a broken arm. It is treating the symptom when the underlying condition is is killing you. Jesus will have none of it. You need to die with him and be raised up. Jesus comes into the temple because he knows that we are called to worship the Lord and he knows that we screw it up all the time. And the only way we will come into God's presence for good as if we have died with him and been raised from the dead. That's why he's zealous not merely that worship be right, but that the temple not be empty, and actually be filled with those who can be there, to face God, to see him, to enjoy him, to love him, and to receive his love. That's why Jesus isn't interested in giving in to these arguments about whether his authority is legitimate. Because he is going to prove it with his body and his blood. And that's the reminder we need this morning, so let's go to this table. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Son and that no substitutes will do. That all of the ways that we've invented of avoiding dealing with Jesus, and all the ways that we convince ourselves that we can get a grip, our failures. And so, as we come to this table, remind us that what we need is the death and resurrection of your Son. So, would you feed our hearts, even now, even this morning, with Him? I ask in Christ's name. Amen.